Do you love learning new things? Do you love the Science Channel? Do you love the Discovery Channel? Well, you've landed on the right spot on your radio dial in your podcasting service. Why? Get ready for an all-new episode of The S-Factor for July 3rd, 2021. And wait, wait a second. Look up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it... It's a comet. Crazy about comets. Coming up next on The S-Factor. Five, four, three, two, one... Welcome to The S-Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. My oh my, is that song the perfect theme music for a show on science. Namely this one, The S-Factor. And the S stands for science and S-Factor. And I want to welcome you aboard my starship. I'm your captain, Chuck Shazer. Welcome aboard. Kick back and relax as we take a ride around the solar system. Go into interstellar space a little bit. Talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. Thank you for joining me on your radio dial right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And if you're listening to me on your favorite podcasting service, all you got to do is go to Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Tuned In, Pandora, whichever you prefer, and type in The S-Factor Podcast, and this show will pop right up for you. You can check out all the past S-Factors if you've missed any. This show has been on the air since December 2019, so there has been so many topics I've talked about that I've covered in the world of science. We've talked about brain-eating amoeba. We've talked about... AI, we've talked about ghosts, we've talked about floating futuristic cities, we've gone into so many different directions, and if you've missed any of those episodes, you can check out scienceanimated.net, all of them are available there, and also on your favorite podcasting service. So much going on in the world of science, and we have no shortage of things to talk about today. Again, I want to thank you for joining me. And of course, it is 4th of July weekend. If you guys are out there, well, I know we're supposed to get some rain. Hopefully uh, that doesn't happen and everyone can enjoy a very dry 4th of July. That would be cool. If you're going out, if you're going to shoot off fireworks, please remember safety first. So be safe and have fun out there as we celebrate our nation's independence. And what a great country it is. Did you ever have someone say to you, hurry up, come on, can't you just move a little faster? Well, this next story is just for you because whether or not people realize it, you, my friend, are moving fast. How fast does the Earth move? Earth is constantly moving as it zooms around the sun. Earth also spins on its axis like a basketball on the tip of a player's finger. So how fast is it moving? In other words, how fast is it rotating on its axis and how fast is it orbiting the sun? To go even further, how fast is a solar system orbiting the Milky Way galaxy? Now that your head is spinning just like the Earth, let's start with the planet itself. Earth turns on its own axis about once every 24 hours, or to be precise, 
every 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. Earth measures 24,898 miles in circumference. So when you divide distance by time, that means the planet is spinning 1,037 miles per hour. That is fast. Now meanwhile, Earth orbits the Sun at about 67,000 miles per hour. According to Ask an Astronomer, a blog run by astronomers at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Scientists know that by taking the distance of Earth travels around the Sun and divides it again by the length, length of time Earth takes to complete one orbit. And it's about 365 days. Ask an Astronomer explains the math. To calculate Earth's distance around the Sun, all scientists need to do is determine the circumference of a circle. We know that the Earth is, on average, about 93 million miles away from the Sun. And we know that it travels in a generally circular path. It's actually more elliptical, but it's simpler to do this equation with a circle. That distance between the Sun and the Earth is the radius of a circle. Once a circumference is calculated, its orbital speed can be determined. The solar system, which includes our Sun and all of the objects that orbit it, is also moving. It's located within the Milky Way, which orbits around the galaxy's center. Scientists know that the Milky Way is orbiting a galactic center based on observations of other stars, said Katie Mack, a theoretical astrophysicist at North Carolina State University. If stars very far away seem to be moving, that's because the solar system is moving compared with the relative position of those faraway stars. To bring this concept back down to Earth, if I were walking, I can tell that I'm moving because the buildings I pass by seem to be moving. From in front to behind me, Max said. If she looks at something more distant, like a mountain on the horizon, it moves a little slower because it's further away than the buildings. By studying other stars' movements relative to the Sun, scientists have determined that the solar system orbits the Milky Way's galactic center at about 447,000 miles per hour. Now, think about that. Our solar system orbits the Milky Way's center at about 447,000 miles an hour. How incredible is that? Then there's the entire Milky Way, which is pulled in different directions by other massive structures such as galaxies and galaxy clusters. Just like scientists can tell that the solar system is moving based on the relative movement of other stars, they can use the relative movement of other galaxies to determine how fast the Milky Way is moving through the universe. Even though everything is moving all the time, living organisms on Earth's surface don't feel it for the same reason passengers on a plane don't feel themselves zipping through the air at hundreds of miles an hour, Max said. When the plane lifts off, passengers feel the plane's acceleration as it speeds down the runway and lifts off. That weighted feeling is caused by the plane's quickly changing speed. But once the plane is flying at cruising altitude, passengers won't feel the speed of hundreds of miles per hour because the speed doesn't change. That's true. Have you been on a plane? So you would know exactly what that means. I mean, it does not feel like you're moving that fast. It feels... You don't really feel like you're moving at all unless you look out the window and then you see the clouds and you have a sense of movement then, but otherwise, you wouldn't know. The passengers won't feel the speed because those passengers are actually moving at the same speed and direction 
or velocity as the airplane. There's no relative motion. Everyone sitting on the airplane is moving at the same speed as the plane itself. The only way passengers might notice there and the plane's movement is by looking out the window. That's what I just said there. So for humans standing on the surface of our planet, they don't feel Earth hurtling around the sun because they're also hurtling around the sun at the same speed. So if you ever wondered how fast the Earth is going, how fast our solar system is traveling around the Milky Way, there you have it. I was brought to you by Live Science. And, of course, the S-Factor is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. ScienceAnimated.net is home to my YouTube series, The Orbit Show, and, of course, this show, The S-Factor, which is all about science. And it is also home to my 40-minute feature. It is called Science Animated, The Human Body. And it is unlike any other educational film you've ever seen. It is fun. It is exciting. You don't even really realize you're watching something educational with the way I, I've structured uh, the storyline in that in that movie. Really different, really cool. And people from all over the country have written me letters explaining how much they enjoy it. You can pick it up right now for $9.99 on the website. And last month I had a little contest and I, I told somebody, if you subscribe to, the, to my podcast, Yes Factor, you'll be entered in a drawing. So Thomas Wright from Austin, Texas, has won a copy of Science Animated, The Human Body. So congratulations on that. And he won the DVD. So enjoy that, Thomas. People around the country have enjoyed it. So you can pick up the DVD for $16.99 and the stream is $9.99. You can watch it on any device as long as you'd like. $9.99, very inexpensive, and you can find that if you go to your website browser in the address bar, type in scienceanimated.net. You can find that movie there. Find out a little bit about your humble host, Chuck Shazer, that you're listening to right now on your radio dial. And if you want to send me an email, email me any questions about the, uh, if you have a question about Science Animated the Human Body, the DVD and uh, stream that, that I sell on the website, you can do that. You can also send in questions that you may want to have me answer about the S-Factor, or if you have a suggestion about something you want me to cover on air, please do so. You can email me, info at scienceanimated.net. I still love communicating with you guys. This radio show is pre-recorded for Cruise 92.1 WVLT, and this also becomes a podcast. So if you want to communicate with me, that's the best way, and I answer my emails. We're going to take a quick time out, and we will be right back. You are listening to The S-Factor right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. We'll be right back.
Don't touch that dial. You've landed on the S Factor. Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, the very first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on your radio dial. And if you missed the show, check out scienceanimated.net. You can listen to the show as a podcast. And, of course, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, tuned in. I think I'm also on Pandora. I am also on Prime, Amazon Prime Podcast. So I'm all over the place. Just type in the S Factor Podcast. And you'll find me there. Next story up here is from Space.com. None of the alien planets we know of could sustain life as we know it, study finds. Ooh, that's a shot to a lot of the people that are hoping that there's alien life out there, especially with all these sightings that have been confirmed by the U.S. military. I'm sure you haven't missed any of those stories that are floating around out there. We have the Tic Tac that was confirmed. I actually listened to an interview with that pilot. It seemed very credible. That was going back to 2004. So the government is, uh, Department of Defense is acknowledging these sightings that were, that have been floating around for quite a while on the internet, but they were denying their legitimacy until recently. So it's really interesting to see that come out. They recently had a report that I think the Pentagon had to release. They had to tell uh, the public, Freedom of Information Act, what they know about these things, and they don't know what they are. I mean, everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath as to, are they going to say that they have debris? Are they, are they going to admit that there's definitely some form of intelligent life that is from outer space that's visiting us? Are they going to admit something like that? Do they know what these things are. They thought maybe there could be a foreign adversary's technology, but, you know, I remember during World War II, there were sightings. There were things in the sky that the fighter pilots saw. They called them Foo Fighters, and actually that's where my favorite band got their name from. (laughs) So they don't know what these things are, but I'm getting off on a tangent there. Let's get back to this study. Now, none of the potentially habitable Earth-like exoplanets known to astronomers today have the right conditions to sustain life as we know it on Earth, with a rich biosphere of plants, microbes, and animals, a new study has found. The study, published in a journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society on Wednesday, assessed the basic conditions for oxygen-based photosynthesis on 10 Earth-like planets with known masses that orbit in the so-called habitable zone around their stars. The habitable zone is a region around a star with the right temperature for the presence of liquid water, a major prerequisite for the existence of life as we know it on Earth. However, the study by a team of astronomers from the University of Naples, Italy, found that being in the habitable zone by itself is not enough. Photosynthesis, the life-giving process that allows plants and some microorganisms to convert light into organic matter, producing oxygen as a byproduct requires the right amount of sunlight and not all stars can provide that. The researchers calculated how much photosynthetically active radiation, PAR, that's radiation in a wavelength range between 400 to 700 nanometers that photosynthetic organisms can use, the planets receive from their stars. 
they found that the planets orbit frequently around the stars that are too cold to provide enough PAR. For example, a star about half the temperature of the sun would provide enough PAR to power some photosynthesis, but not enough to create a rich biosphere as Earth has. In fact, only one of the planets in the studied sample, Kepler-442b, a super-Earth orbiting a star some 1,200 light-years away in a constellation Lyra, came close to receiving enough PAR to sustain a large biosphere, the scientists said in a statement. Even though the study was done on a very small sample of planets, astronomers know enough about the nature of stars in the Milky Way to assume that the right conditions for photosynthesis-driven life might be rare. Most of the stars in the galaxy are so-called red dwarfs, dim stars about a third of the sun's temperature, too cold to generate any photosynthetic activity on the planets in their vicinity. Since red dwarfs are by far the most common type of star in our galaxy, this result indicates that Earth-like conditions on other planets may be much less common than we might hope, Professor Giovanni Covone, lead author of the study, said in a statement. For example, out of the 30 stars in our sun's immediate neighborhood, 20 are believed to be red dwarfs. But stars hotter than the sun are not ideal either. Bright stars generally burn up quickly, and even though they might be producing enough PAR to trigger enough photosynthetic activity on a planet with water and carbon, they probably die before any forms of complex life could evolve on those planets. So unfortunately, it appears that the sweet spot for hosting a rich Earth-like biosphere is not wide, Cavone added. Astronomers have detected thousands of exoplanets in the Milky Way, but they know relatively little about them. It seems, however that it is not that common to find Earth-like rocky planets in habitable zones where water can exist, the scientists said in a statement. Future missions such as the James Webb Space Telescope scheduled for launch later this year might be able to reveal more about the distant worlds around other stars and the possibility of the existence of complex forms of life on them. Now, admittedly, they've only done the study on a very small sample of planets, so I would hope that's not the case. I hope the the universe is teeming, or at least our Milky Way galaxy is teeming with life. Here's another interesting news bit. Earth tipped over on its side 84 million years ago and then righted itself a new study finds. If you've been able to stare at Earth from space during the late Crustaceous when when Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops roamed, it would have looked like the whole planet had tipped over on its side. According to a new study, Earth tilted by 12 degrees about 84 million years ago. A 12 degree tilt of the Earth could affect the latitude that same amount. Cyrus Schlosnick, a geobiologist at Dartmouth College and co-author of the new study, told Insider. It would approximately move New York City to where Tampa, Florida is right now, she said. Imagine the Earth as a chocolate truffle, a center ensconed in a hardened shell. The center consists of a semi-solid mantle that encircles the liquid outer core. The top layer of the truffle, the Earth's crust, is fragmented into tectonic plates that fit together like a puzzle. Continents and oceans sit atop these plates, which surf atop the mantle. The researchers found that between 86 and 79 million years ago, 
the crust and mantle had rotated around Earth's outer core and back again, causing the entire planet to tilt and then right itself like a roly-poly toy. Scientists can piece together a picture of which tectonic plates were where millions of years ago by analyzing what's known as paleomagnetic data. When lava at the junction of two tectonic plates cools, some of the resulting rock contains magnetic minerals that align with the directions of Earth's magnetic poles at the time the rock solidified. Even after the plates containing those rocks have moved, researchers can study that magnetic alignment to parse out where the global map those natural magnets existed in the past. The study authors examined the magnetic alignment of ancient limestones they collected from Italy and found Earth's crust was moving about three degrees every million years during its tilt and tilt back again. We never suspected we would see this full round-trip event, Ross Mitchell, a, geo a geophysicist at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Schlossner's co-author told Insider. Imagine that the Earth is like a spinning top. If the top's weight is evenly distributed, it should whirl perfectly without any wobbling. But if some of the weight were to shift from one side or the other, that would change the top center of mass, leading it to tilt toward the heavier side as it spins. Now, according to Schleusnick, upwellings of hot rock and magma known as mantle plumes from the outer core toward the crust may have played a role in altering how Earth's mass was distributed during the late Crustaceous. But Mitchell said shifting tectonic plates could explain Earth's ancient 12-degree tilt. When hotter, less dense material from deep within the mantle rises toward the crust, and colder, denser material sinks toward the core. These plates can collide. Upon impact, one plate will subduct or sink under another. Now, prior to the late Crustaceous, the Pacific Plate, the largest tectonic plate on Earth's spanning 40 million square miles under the Pacific Ocean, was sinking under another plate to its north. Around 84 million years ago, the Pacific Plate started subducting in a different direction, under another plate to its west. This change might have very well changed the literal balance of the planet, Mitchell said. He wasn't surprised to find the Earth had reversed course and tilted back. The planet's outer layer behaves like a rubber band and would have snapped back to its original shape after the excursion. How incredible is this? That was a cool story from Business Insider. I'm glad it took that long for the Earth to flip, because if that happened right away, that would have been really devastating for life on the planet, and I would not want to be up for that ride. Don't forget to visit my website, scienceanimated.net. There you'll find Science Animated Human Body, which is a 40-minute DVD, or you can purchase it as a stream for $9.99. It will be the most action-packed, coolest educational movie that you have ever seen, or I guarantee your money back if that's not the case for you scienceanimated.net. Make sure you check that out. And coming up, we're going to talk about comets. We're going comet crazy. Coming right up on the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Thank you for joining me today. We'll be right back. We all like to look good. We all like to look good, feel good. We know how important it is to have a healthy diet and how important it is to exercise. There's so many people today that feel like they don't have time to exercise, they don't have time to eat right, but now there is a solution. 
If you feel like you don't have time, if you feel like you don't have time to travel somewhere to a gym and work out, the solution is Tony Fit. Personal trainer, certified personal trainer, and the creator of Tony Fit, Tony Basil, can help guide you to better health. She can show you the best exercises to do, no matter what the situation is. If you love going to a gym, she can go to the gym with you and show you the proper way to exercise. If you want to do it through a Zoom call, you want to do it virtually, she can do that too. If you have equipment or if you don't have equipment, in either case and in any case, Tawny Basil can guide you in achieving your goals. If your goal is to lose weight, if your goal is to get stronger, if your goal is just simply getting better physical health, Tawny Basil can guide you. She's a professional certified trainer. She has years of experience. She's helped countless clients in the Delaware Valley here, and she can help you too. Contact Tawny Basil. Now, Tawny, what is the best way for the listeners of The S Factor to contact you to get started on their road to better health? You can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text ready. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message ready to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. Don't touch that dial. You've landed on the S Factor. You never take advice. Someday you'll pay wow, what great bumper music there. So many cool tunes out there. I love music. And I, by the way, I hope you're enjoying this broadcast, the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. The S Factor is all about science. And you can catch me here the first Saturday of every month on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, and also on your favorite podcasting service. Just go to Google Podcast or Apple Podcast and type in The S Factor Podcast. I will pop right up, and I would appreciate if you would subscribe and give me a star rating. That would be fantastic. Now, this next story from Wired Magazine is about little critters stuck in a permafrost. There's a series I have called Orbit Show. It's a free series that I have on my YouTube channel. There is an animation about a permafrost bear. I think you'll like it if you check that out. The Orbit Show on scienceanimated.net. Now here's a cool story from Wired. 24,000 years in permafrost still didn't kill these ancient critters. Rotifiers are microscopic freshwater-dwelling multicellular organisms. They're already known to withstand freezing, even in liquid nitrogen, boiling, and radiation, and the group has persisted for millions of years without procreating. The humble rotifier has now surprised researchers yet again. A recent study unearthed 24,000-year-old Siberian permafrost and found living rotifiers there. Surviving 24,000 years and a deep freeze is a new record for the species. Rotifiers aren't the only living organisms to emerge from permafrost or ice. 
The same researchers behind this latest discovery had previously found roughly 40,000-year-old viable roundworms in the region's permafrost. Ancient moss, seeds, viruses, and bacteria have all shown impressive longevity on ice, prompting legitimate concern about whether any potentially harmful pathogens may also be released as glaciers and permafrost melt. Now, given they're generally only a threat to bacteria and algae, there's not much need for concern regarding this particular discovery, but as key players in the bottom of the food chain, newly re-emerged rotifiers indicate that maybe we should think about how species haven't been seen for millennia, how they might reintegrate into modern ecosystems. The Soil Cryology Lab in Russia has been digging up Siberian permafrost in search of ancient organisms for roughly a decade. The group estimates the age of the organisms it finds by radiocarbon dating the surrounding soil samples, and evidence has shown that there is no vertical movement through layers of permafrost. For example, last year the researchers reported a frozen zoo of 35 viable protists, and that's the nucleus-containing organisms that are neither animal, plant, nor fungus, and they calculated that they range from hundreds to tens of thousands of years old. So we are really unearthing some ancient organisms here. And you know that uh, episode I told you about the Orbit Show? That's on my YouTube channel that you can get to from scienceanimated.net. That refers to a permafrost bear that was also unearthed in Russia. I don't know if unearthed is actually even the right terminology because as the permafrost melted, it exposed this bear. And that's kind of like what Orbit, the, the star of the show, stumbles upon. He's in a Russian Arctic. And uh, anyway, I won't spoil it for you, but it's a pretty cool episode if you go to scienceanimated.net and check that out. But... They keep finding things as this permafrost melts, and this is another story about how they have done this yet again in Russia here. Now, the team that discovered this was naturally interested in better understanding the freezing process and gaining insight into just how these ronifiers survived so long. As a first step, the researchers subsequently froze a selection of the cloned ronifiers at negative 15 degrees for one week and captured videos of the rotifiers reviving. The researchers did find that the rotifiers could survive a relatively slow freezing process around 45 minutes, and this is noteworthy because it was gradual enough that ice crystals formed inside of the animal's cells, a development that is usually catastrophic for living organisms. In fact, protective mechanisms against this are highly sought after by anyone in the business of cryopreservation making this latest finding especially enticing from that perspective. Think about this. As we study these organisms, and how, you know, how in the world have they survived this 24,000-year-old freeze, right? And our discoveries... Now, people, always, people will sometimes say... Some people will sometimes say... Let me rephrase that. Why do we do research like this? What the heck does all of this mean? Well, if we can find out how these organisms that we send into space, how they're able to survive. We really study that, study how these rotifiers, these organisms that they have discovered because of the permafrost melting in Russia, and figure out how they are reviving after being frozen for 24,000 years, we might gain some insight into how to do that to our bodies. And there are a lot of cryopreservation companies out there that will freeze you and you know, with hopes that one day they can revive you 
Because right now the technology isn't there to revive you. We can freeze you, but the technology isn't necessarily there to revive you in the year 3000, let's say. And also, this kind of reminds me of Captain America. If you're a Marvel movie fan, he was frozen and revived many years later. <laughs> so, Now, the researchers found that not all of the rotifiers survived. Surprisingly, they generally weren't much more freeze-tolerant than their contemporary rotifiers from Iceland, Alaska, Europe, or North America, and even Asian and African tropics. They were a little more freeze-tolerant than their closest genetic relative, but the difference was marginal. Now, although the authors aren't quite in the cryopreservation business, they do plan additional experiments to better understand cryptobiosis, the state of almost completely arrested metabolism that made the rotifier survival possible. As for research into cryopreservation of larger organisms like humans, the authors suggest that this becomes trickier as the organism in question becomes more complex. That said, rotifiers are among the most complicated cryopreserved species so far, complete with organs such as brain and a gut. And that's from Wired.com. Really neat story. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to go comet crazy. Coming up next on the S Factor, I hope you are enjoying your 4th of July weekend so far. Thank you for joining me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT or my podcast. I will be right back. You burn so bright I see stars The way you laugh It's like a heavenly choir You made me feel Invincible When you're with me I can take on the world You are a comet And I lost it Watching for comments Will I see you again? You burn so bright You burn me up tonight Don't touch that dial, you've landed on The S Factor Excellent, excellent music there Welcome back to The S Factor, I'm your host Chuck Shazer We are about to talk about going comet crazy right here on the S Factor. There's been some comet activity in the news lately, so I figured it would be a cool opportunity to talk about comets in general and also some of the latest news surrounding it. So what is a comet exactly? Of course, you probably learned about that in school, but if you need a little refresher, no problem. Let's talk about what they actually are. Now, a comet, according to NASA, Comets are a cosmic snowball of frozen gas, rock, and dust that orbit the sun. Now, when frozen, they're the size of a small town. When a comet's orbit brings it close to the sun, it heats up and spews dust and gases into a giant glowing head larger than most planets. The dust and gases form a tail that stretches away from the sun for millions of miles. There are likely billions of comets orbiting our sun in a Kepler belt, and even more distant Oort cloud. Now, did you know this? The current number of known comets, these are ones that we have tracked and that we know are out there, 3,736. That's amazing. Now, if they're heading towards the sun, they'll give us a dazzling display, right? But what if they're traveling towards Earth? 
Now, according to Forbes magazine, it was a comet strike that killed the dinosaurs, and it's ten times more likely than we thought, say scientists. 66 million years ago, something huge struck Earth off Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula and caused a decades-long impact winter that killed the dinosaurs. Now, what that means is, when it made the impact, why did it produce a impact winter that lasted decades? Well, when it hit, there was so much stuff that flew up in the air and in the atmosphere, it blocked the sun's rays from reaching Earth. Without the energy from the sun reaching the Earth, when it's blocked like that, plants can't grow. Plants can't grow, things die. And if we were around back then, we would be gone. In this time period here, it was the dinosaurs that starved and made way for other species to evolve. Now, was it an asteroid or a comet? Why did it hit Earth, and when should we expect the next one? It was a long-period comet from the Oort cloud, an icy sphere of debris around the outer solar system, and Jupiter caused it to hit Earth. Which is interesting that they say that because... That they say that now because Jupiter really absorbs a lot of things that would actually hit us. It's kind of our defender, our protector, in that sense. Now they say we should expect one every 250 to 730 million years. And that's according to a new paper published today in Nature's Scientific Reports by astronomers Avi Loeb and Amir Shira at Harvard University Center for Astrophysics. Avi Loeb, by the way, was... I talked about him a lot when it came to Oumuamua. Remember that? That's the interstellar visitor, the first one we've ever observed in history. He thought it was remnant of a alien civilization. Do you remember that episode? If you haven't heard that episode, go to scienceanimated.net and check it out. Probably February show, I'm going to say. So he published a paper saying we should expect one of these killer comets... Every 250 to 730 million years. It's very interesting. Um, you know, Avi Loeb has been in the news um, that's a couple of times now this year. Now, the crux of the argument is that some long-period comets, which take more than 200 years to complete an orbit around the sun and come from the far-off Oort cloud, can be sent close to the sun by the immense gravitational field of Jupiter. The solar system acts as a kind of pinball machine, said Sergei who used statistical analysis and gravitational simulations. Jupiter, the most massive planet, kicks incoming long-period comets into orbits that bring them very close to the sun. About a fifth of long-period comets become sun grazers, according to the paper. However, the problem isn't these sun grazers per se, but they experience such powerful tidal forces that they break apart into many smaller pieces. And it's this cometary shrapnel... That is the problem. On the journey back to the Oort cloud, there is an enhanced probability that one of these fragments can hit the Earth. Now, scarily, Sergey and Loeb worked out a new rate of impact and predict that the chances of fragments from long-period comets impacting Earth are almost ten times more likely than previously thought. Yeah, that's not something that's going to make you sleep better at night to know that. <laughs> well, while a strike by a main-belt asteroid of over ten kilometers in diameter, big enough to cause... Uh, crater, you know, the size that was uh, left after the dinosaur impact, it's expected every 350 million years. A direct hit by a long-period comet is rated as once every 3.8 to 11 billion years. 
However, fragments from long-period comets striking Earth are calculated to occur more frequently, about once every 250 to 730 million years. That's in the range of about 10 times more likely than thought. Why it's thought that the dinosaur killer was a comet rather than an asteroid is down to evidence found at the crater. Traces of carbonation, co carbonaceous chondrite have been found, which is rarely seen in asteroids from the main asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, but thought common among long-period comets. Traces of carbonaceous chondrite have also been found at Vertifort in South Africa, the largest confirmed crater in Earth's history, caused by an impact about 2 billion years ago, and at the million-years-old Zamashin crater in Kazakhstan. Now, more studies required, according to the authors of Comet Craters on the Moon, Comet Sampling Space Missions, and Observations of How Long-Period Comets Break Up in the Fragments, is what's needed. So, we need to find out a little bit more, but... These two researchers are finding that it could be 10 times more likely that we get hit by these offshoots. But I like the idea of it being every 250 million years, you know, to 730 million years before we get one of these impacts that the dinosaurs experienced. Listen, folks, space is a dangerous place. And we are very fortunate to have had so much time uh, for our species to evolve to where we are today the modern human is only because and our technological advances are only because we have lucked out and we have been fortunate to get this far without some kind of global catastrophe from space so count yourself lucky some people walk around and are like i have if i didn't have bad luck i wouldn't have any luck well it could get a, it could be a lot worse <laughs> you know if you look at the if you look at the threats from space when it comes to things like this, uh, count yourself very very lucky. We're all lucky in that respect, that's for sure. Now we talked about what comets are, and we talked about probably the most famous comet of all time, the comet that led to the eventual extinction of the dinosaurs. So what's new that's going on with comets? Well, there's something very interesting that has been recently discovered. Astronomers discovered a very interesting object called 2014 UN271. It's a giant chunk of ice and rock that normally spends its time far, far out past Neptune, but it is now heading into the solar system. Yes, our solar system. And we will get about as close to this, and, and it will get about as close to the sun as Saturn over the next 10 years. And to be clear, a lot of new comets we find dip pretty close to the sun after spending millennia out there in the black. But this one is different for quite a few reasons. A big comet might be 50 kilometers wide, the size of the famous Hale-Bob comet, which visited the inner solar system in the 90s. And you know what? I remember watching that comet. I will never forget it. I can't remember exactly what the year was, but it was in the 90s, and I remember being outdoors with my telescope and looking at that comet. It was very visible. Like, you could see it with the naked eye. And, you know, e email me if you remember uh, Hale-Bob from the 1990s, if you remember watching that. I want to know what you thought about that, your experience. You can email me at info at scienceanimated.net, info at scienceanimated.net. 
And I remember thinking to myself, my goodness, if that thing was on a slightly different trajectory, we would be in a lot of trouble. And we would have been. Now, this comet may be 200 kilometers wide, which is 124 miles wide. Okay? 124 miles wide. What crashed in the Yucatan Peninsula, peninsula, which wiped out the dinosaurs, was 7 to 10 miles wide. This thing is mammoth in, in comparison. 124 miles wide. Thank goodness it's not heading towards Earth. Now, the discovery of this comet that, I, that I'm talking about now was announced on June 19th of this year. And even since then, the orbit has been updated a few times. But generally speaking, the orbit is very long and the object is obviously very big. Now, the 2014 UN-271 is what is called a trans-Neptunian object, or TNO. And it's a class of objects that orbit the Sun out past Neptune and come in a variety of shapes, sizes, orbits, and so on. And some like this one are quite big. And Pluto is technically the largest we know of at about 2,400 kilometers wide, a distance from Denver to Washington, D.C. Many are found in the 100 to 1,000 kilometer range, but these objects are so far away, we've only found a handful of the trillions of them that are out there. Now, this massive comet that we're talking about, the 2014 UN-271, spends about, spends most of its 600,000 year or so orbit, hundreds of billions of kilometers from the sun. The only reason it was found at all is because it's only about 3 billion kilometers away from us right now. Roughly the distance of Neptune from the Sun. That's how its size was found as well. Given a few, given a, for a given brightness we see at Earth, a shiny object is smaller and a dark one bigger. If we assume it reflects 4% of the sunlight hitting it, it's 200 kilometers wide. Like I said, 140, that equals 124 miles wide this comet. But it might be darker and bigger, or more reflective and smaller. We'll know better in the next few weeks. And we don't know what this object is made of exactly. Given what we know about TNOs, it's likely a mix of water, ice, and rock, plus other frozen things like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrogen, and the like. It's too small to be round, its gravity too weak to crush itself into a sphere, so it's very likely irregular in shape. Now, it makes its closest approach in early 2031, so around 10 years away from seeing this thing. Now, that's soon, but perhaps enough time to get a probe together to send to it. The European Space Agency is building a mission called Comet Interceptor that is specifically designed to look for comets coming from deep space that are on their first inbound trip to the inner solar system. Now, if they're successful in getting close to this, we've never had a chance to see anything like this up close before. Now, some moons of the outer planets look like captured TNOs, but they've certainly been altered over the eons by their host planet and proximity to the sun. So in 2031, we're going to get a really, we're going to get an exceptional view of this comet. But as of now, there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to worry about an impact with the Earth. It's not on the collision path, but certainly very interesting to say the least. And that's how comet crazy we're going to get today on the S-Factor. I want to thank you for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to bring you the best in the world of science every month, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. 
And you can catch me anytime. You can catch the podcast of the show at any time at scienceanimated.net, where you can go to Google Podcast or Apple Podcast and type in the S Factor Podcast, and I will come right up. You can listen to all the past shows. I've been doing this for almost two years now. And this is all brought to you by scienceanimated.net. Check out the website, purchase Science Animated the Human Body, subscribe to the YouTube channel, to the podcast. I'd appreciate all of that. Visit the sponsors. Thank you very much for joining me. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the 4th of July. I will see you next month. Be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer for The S Factor. See you next time, everybody. You have been listening to The S Factor. Brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT.